show from HBO called The Newsroom. Any Newsroom fans out there? I'm, I'm like a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin, who's the, the writer. And I just want us to watch this, this clip as an example of prophetic speech. So, so let's watch this together. Can you say in one sentence or less what, <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Can you say why America is the greatest country in the world? Diversity and opportunity. Lewis? Uh, freedom and freedom. So let's keep it that way. Well, the New York Jets. <laughs> no, I'm going to hold you to an answer on that. What makes America the greatest country in the world? Well, Lewis and Sharon said it. Diversity and opportunity and freedom and freedom. You don't look satisfied. I want a human moment from you. What about the people? Why is America Not the greatest, the greatest country in the world, Professor. That's my answer. You're saying... Yes. Let's talk about... Fine. The Sharon, the NEA is a loser. Yeah, it accounts for a penny out of her paycheck, but he gets to hit you with it any time he wants. It doesn't cost money. It costs votes. It costs airtime and column inches. You know why people don't like liberals? Because they lose. And with a straight face, you're going to tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world who have freedom? Canada has freedom. Japan has freedom. The UK, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Australia, Belgium has freedom. So 207 sovereign states in the world, like 180 of them have freedom. All right. And yet you, uh, just in case you accidentally wander into a voting booth one day, there's some things you should know. And one of them is there is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what you're talking about. Yosemite? Sure used to be. We stood up for what was right. We fought for moral reasons. We passed laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. We sacrificed, we cared about our neighbors. We put our money where our mouths were and we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we cultivated the world's greatest artists and the world's greatest economy. We reached for the stars, acted like men. We aspired to intelligence. We didn't belittle it. It didn't make us feel inferior. We didn't identify ourselves by who we voted for in the last election, and we didn't, we didn't scare so easy. We were able to be all these things and do all these things because we were informed by great men, men who were revered, 
first step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one. America is not the greatest country in the world anymore. Enough? But that is what a prophet sounds like. When they speak, they make everybody mad. Like, everybody. It doesn't matter side of the... the future. Like, a prophet is someone who, who can predict the future accurately. Um, but scripture actually doesn't talk about the prophets in this way. The prophets didn't so much tell the, the future as they did. They told the truth about the way things are right now. And the future came into it because they would say, if we don't change, this is what's going to happen in the future. And so the first task of the prophet really all along was to, to just tell the truth. This, this is what's wrong. This is our problem. And, and, and the truth for the prophets, it's almost always the last thing that people want to hear. I mean, what, what people want to hear is conventional wisdom. Like, we, we want to hear things that confirm everything that we already think. That's just, that's what we like to hear. But the prophets rail against the conventional wisdom of the day. In this clip, the girl's question was, why is America the greatest nation? The last thing she thought she was going to hear was, it's not. That's how the prophet speaks. And I love um, Jeff Daniels' performance in, in this clip because he does a great job of portraying the prophet's reticence to speak. Like she asks a question, he tries to get out of answering it twice. It's the New York Jets, which nobody's going to buy because the Jets are awful. They're always awful. Then he just repeats the other two. It's like diversity, freedom, like the, the pat answers, the conventional wisdom. And he's just trying hard not to, to say what he actually thinks. But that's not the prophetic office. The prophetic thing is to tell the truth that nobody wants to hear. And the moment they, they open their mouths to speak, the prophets know they're just going to get hammered by people. No one's going to like it. And so they genuinely try to avoid it. You can see it even in the scriptures. They're begging God to leave them out of it. Like just choose somebody else. But the problem is the prophet can see things others can't seem to see. Mostly about just what's happening in the world here and now. And it genuinely seems, seems to drive them a little bit crazy. And so they, they don't want to speak, but they have this insight and they can't help their themselves because they care about their own people. You think about the prophets in the scriptures, all of them had broken hearts. Like every one of them were heartbroken. Did you catch when, when after he kind of goes on the rant, he takes a breath and then there's just this sadness to the way he spoke. He did that really well. I once heard Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, say that the prophets are not so much angry as they are sad. They are sad because they see where this is going. I think that's right. There, there's the blow up of, and the rant, and then, and then there's the kind of sadness that overwhelms them. 
Like when you, when you say you're the great, we're the greatest country, I don't know what you mean. And then he's like, we sure used to be. We stood up for what was right. We fought for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. He says, we sacrificed, we cared. We never beat our chests. We built great things. We, we had technological advances and cured diseases. We cultivated both artists and economies. We reached for the star, stars. We, we aspired to intelligence. We didn't belittle it. It didn't make us feel inferior. And we didn't identify ourselves by who we voted for in the last election. And we didn't scare so easily. Um, and you can tell by the end of this, he's, he's not angry. He's just sad. And the sadness in, in prophetic speech is part of the deal. It's, it's important, actually, because it creates in us this sense of longing. And the longing matters. You have to be able to say, like, we, we didn't used to be this way. And, and we can be... Again, the longing kind of stirs in the listeners their own sense of, of longing, and they start to, to dream a little bit about an alternative future. And so by the time the prophet's done speaking, everyone can almost see it, that, that future. And if they buy in, like with their lives, to what the prophet is saying, then what comes alive in them is this little glimmer of hope. Hope in a future that doesn't, yet exists, but it can exist if they'll take hold of it and turn toward one another in compassion and neighborly concern, if they start to have hope in that better future. But this is it. This is what the prophets sounded like. They were offensive, and yet they were undeniably naming something true about our world and then inspiring people to live in hope toward a different future. There's a sense in which the prophets sort of do four things at once. They tell the truth about what's going on right now, and they tell the truth about where things are heading if we don't change. But then, and always kind of tinged with a sense of sadness, they call for a new imagination for where things could go, and then they inspire hope from people for that better future that could come, but only through God's faithful presence. We're beginning... Um, the season of Advent this morning, and it's these four weeks in which we prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of Messiah. And part of how we do this is um, each year by listening to the voice of the prophets during this season, allowing them to call our lives into question and letting them kind of fill us both with a sense of sadness about way things are in the brokenness of our world, but at the same time, a sense of hope for a future that is better than today. Our text for today comes from the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah gave speeches like this all the time. Um, Jeremiah walks in the room, everybody groans. That's just how, that's how it went for him. Um, he always talking about this, this once great kingdom, you know, and the dream of Israel and Judah, the kingdom in the south. Now they were in trouble. Their only really good king in forever, Josiah, had died. The next two guys were were terrible. The current king, Zedekiah, turned out to be the last king of Judah. Babylon was lurking outside the city, and it was just a matter of time before they were sacked. There's actually this um, interesting rabbinic legend that grew up after the fact. Um, it says that Pharaoh Necho from Egypt uh, dispatched an army to help them, a fleet on ships from Egypt to come and help the, the people of Judah. 
because it was sort of better for Pharaoh if, they, if um, the Babylonian army was weakened before they ended up coming down to, to Egypt. But on the way, on the ships, God commanded the waters to be covered in corpses and dead bodies floating around. And the Egyptians realized these must be the dead bodies of their ancestors who had drowned in the Red Sea. Uh, because of the, the Israelites or the Jewish people. And so they were thinking, why should we go help these people who drowned all our ancestors? And so they turned their ships around. And the, the whole point of the, the legend was that this is why Israel was without help in that moment. There would be no one to help bail Judah out. In 597 BC, it's 10 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, Babylon had come and they kind of instituted a partial Exile. They took a bunch of the rich people, the aristocrats, um, not all of them, but a bunch of them, they, they sent them off to, to Babylon. And um, the prophets at the time in the king's court were a bunch of sort of, you know, soothsayers. They, they told the king exactly what he wanted to hear. And, and their message was, this, this is the worst of it. Like, it's, this is as bad as it's going to get. In fact, those guys will be back in just a, a few months. Don't worry. And then came Jeremiah, the only one who could tell the truth. And he brought the bad news. Jeremiah said, it's not going to be two months. It's going to be longer. In Jeremiah 29, he says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. He's talking about Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That last line probably sounds familiar. It's like a really well-known um, passage from Scripture. Um, often recited as a source of hope. But its original articulation here was in the, the midst of just like catastrophe and dire prophetic words from the prophet Jeremiah, who was the only one who could tell the truth about the re reality, that Jerusalem would be sacked, the temple torn down, their country completely destroyed, and, and nobody would be coming home anytime soon. And yet somehow Jeremiah was able to find this word of hope in, in the, the midst of this horrible national catastrophe. He says, but the Lord says, I have plans for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for a hope and a good future. It's interesting with the prophets. Ezekiel and Daniel, two of the big ones, they focus most of their prophecies on like political stuff, economic stuff, injustice, rebellious, um, religious issues, stuff like that, and the destruction, you know, of the political situation. Jeremiah was an Ephraimite from the tribe of Ephraim, and so was the prophet Hosea. You know that book? In the, the prophet Hosea about the kind of marriage thing, they both said, because they were kind of from the same tribe, they both said Israel's problem wasn't political. Their problem was infidelity. Yahweh had married 
Israel in this like covenant ceremony. Remember, remember Moses, we talked about this summer, going up and down the hill, mediating this covenant between the people and God. But Israel had committed adultery with other gods. And so the exile would be their divorce, the termination of the covenant. Israel was like an uh, unfaithful wife who would now be turned out of the house and would have to live as a servant in another man's house in, in Babylon. But even so, God was already hatching a plan to reunite her. Jeremiah 31 says, the days are coming. That's a huge phrase for Jeremiah. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's the, the north and then the south. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. I will put my law, this time, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So this is that thing of, of hope the prophets do. The days are coming. Jeremiah, I love that phrase. It's over and over in his writing, saying things are bad, but the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Um, Jeremiah 31, 31 is actually the only time in the entire Old Testament where that, that phrase, new covenant, occurs. It's the only time. Jeremiah said, we need to tell the truth about what is happening. The north is gone and the south will soon be gone and it's our fault. We committed adultery, a grave infidelity, and we're going to be sent away to be a servant in another man's house and, and it's going to last for a while. So what we do with that time is really important. We have to use that time to, to be formed again in fidelity, to practice fidelity. In essence, what he was trying to tell them is, we're going to have to learn to live in Babylon without becoming Babylonians. That's the job in exile. And this is so important. The, the task of the people of God when they get to Babylon is, is to get to work, to live and, and work and, and build houses and have kids there. But don't just become Babylonian. Be faithful to Yahweh because the days are coming when Yahweh will bring you out again. There's this other time Jeremiah uses that same phrase. It's, it's a really important passage, and this is actually our assigned text for the day from um, the lectionary. It comes from Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. It says, The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the, fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And those, in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So David's kingdom's cut down and look like a dead stump, but this little branch will spring up from it a king who will execute justice and righteousness in the land. And Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live. It, it was all this promise of a, of a better future that they could hope in, even in the midst of this season of, of intense 
disorientation. And I think that actually this is the reason they assign us the prophet Jeremiah to read here um, on, on the first Sunday of, of Advent. It's because we also live in a time of deep disorientation. We talk about this a lot at Redemption because we're trying to tell the truth about the world we live in. Our world is not at peace with itself. Like, do, do you feel that? We live in this world that's not at peace with itself on any number of levels. Just think about nature and climate change. I mean, the, the, the earth is changing at an alarming pace because we've exploited it for a really long time and, and that bill is coming due. And we can't even get together to try and face this because our own society is not at peace with itself. We've separated into these warring tribes and factions, all hell-bent on trying to crush one another. And then in a broader kind of cultural, philosophical sense, we talked about this last week, we live in a time of, like the basic norms of culture are being completely renegotiated. All the systems we rely on, um, religious, political economic, educational, cultural, these systems are, are breaking down. They no longer bind us together. Instead, they're, they're tearing us apart. New technologies have like radically transformed our society in a really short time. Medical advances, scientific advances, um, the microchip, um, the digital revolution, the smartphone, I mean, the internet. These things have scrambled our understanding of like what it means to be human and disrupted our patterns of relating to one another and to our work, to ourselves, even, even to God. We're, and we're not, handling, we're not handling these changes very well. There's this writer, Isaac Asimov, a, a science fiction guy who's a scientist too. He said it this way. He said, the saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. That rings true, right? The speed of change in every sector of our culture has outpaced our collective wisdom. And this has left us reeling. And in a season of deep disorientation, there's just no consensus on, on what's going on, much less what, what we should do and how to face up to our problems. And so we, we, we read the prophets, like Jeremiah during this season, because we're trying to convince ourselves to just maybe try and tell the truth about where we are and where it's all going. And we read, read the prophets because we need a new imagination for a future that can be based in hope and to let that hope be, be the source of, of our lives. But until we actually begin to speak like the prophets did and tell the truth about our situation and to help those around us to face it as well, face it head on, we're going to be stuck. And, and we won't have, you know, conventional wisdom can't get us to where we need to go. The problem is most people will do almost anything to keep from facing any reality that calls our own actions and attitudes into question. I'm trying really hard not to look at my wife right now who has to be laughing at me because this is, this is all of us, right? 
This is just how we live. It's just a general rule. We don't, we don't want to hear the truth, man. We want to hear whatever makes us feel like we're fine. And the prophets are, man, they tell the truth, and it's depressing sometimes. All they ever say is we're blowing it and, and making things worse. And if we don't change, we're in trouble. And for most people, this is all of us, most of the time, either we don't want to change or we don't really know how to change. And so the typical response we have is one of two responses. And I have a little visual aid to help us. Um, so this is what I want to do. I want to, I'm going to ask Heidi to take this and pass it over your head, straight back. And we're going to pass it down, right down this aisle, all the way to the back. And maybe, Beth, could you grab it when it gets back there? Yeah, just keep passing it back. There you go. And this, and, and kind of hold it up a little bit so we can see it. This is our visual aid. Keep passing. Okay, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're splitting the world into, into two kinds of people. Sorry, Heidi, you're totally gonna, you don't have to hold it that high, but yeah, there you go, perfect, excellent. Product of Redemption Youth Group right there. She's just killing it. <laughs> All right, so what, what happens in our world when we're faced with seasons of disorientation is usually one of two things. People will default to either cynicism, that's what you guys are gonna be, cynicism, or sentimentality, okay? That's going to be sentimentality. So this is the cynical response. This is the sentimental response. So cynicism, you might real quick want to like strike a cynical pose. Like roll your eyes a little bit or just shake your head. Yeah, that's it. Okay, you got it. Very good. So the cynic looks at the world and says, there is no hope, man. Why even try? Now, I'm not, by the way, talking about pessimism. I'm kind of a pessimist. There's a difference between cynicism and pessimism. Pessimism, um, it expects everything to go badly, but if it doesn't go badly, they're like, hey, this is great. The cynic needs everything to go badly. Like their whole worldview depends upon it, right? Oscar Wilde said it this way, a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing, right? Nothing is valuable, like there's nothing could be worth it. And of course, it's just a self-protective move, right? It's a way to try to not get hurt. If I don't care about anything, I can't get hurt. And there are many, many cynical people in our world. That's a lot of people. Now, there's also the reaction of sentimentality. That's you guys over here. So to, to symbolize sentimentality, just go like this and cover your eyes. That's basically it, right? So the, the sentimentalist looks at the world and says, you know, everything's fine. It's fine. It's not, it's not that bad. You just stop worrying about it, and it'll all get better, right? And they try to live on happy feelings instead of on reality. They close their eyes to, to reality. Oscar Wilde said of this, a sentimentalist is simply one who wants to have the luxury of an emotion without paying for it. That's it. It's a form of escapism. One of my favorite theologians, Stanley Hauerwas, he says that the biggest danger to the church in our time is not secularity, it's sentimentality. He said that's the biggest danger because it makes us shallow and dim. It makes us silly and foolish and naive at a time when we need to be smart and have our eyes wide open. So the cynics and the sentimentalists, this is their approach to disorientation. What happens is they both end up in the same exact place. 
which is they disengage from their responsibility for the future. They say, everything's broken, you know, why even try? Or they say, everything's fine, there's no, no need to even change. And they both just abandon the future to somebody else. And during Advent, we try to open up a space for a different option. Advent comes into a world that has been divided into cynics and sentimentalists, and it says, what if there's, what if there's another, another choice? And so this is what I want to do. Okay, we're going to, all right, Heidi, you and me, we're going to open this up, split it. See if we can split it and hand it over to the people. There you go, all the way to the back. So we're going to split this up. Now, just start passing it back when you get it down. Pass it back to the people in the very back row. Just keep pulling it. There you go. Until it kind of, there you go. And it, when you're in the back, just kind of hold it up about, you know, shoulder level or a little higher so we can see it. Okay. So the, the Advent move is this move that we just did. Did it break? Sorry. I'm, I'm really lame. Somebody hand that, hand that side over to Gretchen so it'll, so it'll stick together. We got a, a Walter's trying to root, loop in the, the whole thing. That's fine. It's fine. It's all good. So this is the, this is the Advent move. So the faithful response to brokenness and disorientation to the truth about our world is not to wallow in despair and also not to just ignore the brokenness through sentimentality. It, it is rather to try to crowd out cynicism and sentimentality to, to the edges and then to make space in the middle for hope, for hope. So the, that's the faithful response in our time is it's not default to sentimentality or cynicism, but to just tell the truth about the way things are and where it's going. We're in trouble. It, the world is a mess, and we're going to be here, apparently, for a while. Um, and so it all starts with there. You have to start with the truth. Hear me now. This is so important. There is no path to hope that avoids telling the truth. There is no way to get to hope without first telling the truth about our lives and about the world. And then the next move is to cultivate a new imagination for a life of faithfulness and to find a place of hope that is rooted in, and this is the Advent move, that is rooted in the promise of God's presence with us in the midst of the disorientation. That's all we get. God does not promise to fix everything. God just promises to draw near, to be present. And somehow God's presence completely transforms our experience of even, even the broken stuff. And so, so during Advent, we try to carve out a space for hope, the kind of hope promised in the prophets, and for this future that's good that comes crashing into the world in the form of a baby. So we open up this space between cynicism and sentimentality. We kind of push that out to the side, and, and we, we begin to have this hope, and hope actually can harvest the best of cynicism, like the ability to actually name what's wrong, and the best of sentimentality, this belief that actually things can be good, 
And then it, in this space, it transforms those things into action, into a new way of being in the world. Hope says, we've been handed a mess, yes, but the days are coming. That's what Jeremiah says. The days are coming when God will move. God will be present among God's faithful people. And so how do we do this? Well, Jeremiah's answer was, we have to learn to draw our lives from a different source, from the promise of God's presence in the midst of just our ordinary lives for just ordinary people like you and me. That God will enter into the world in a decisive way and initiate, we believe as Christians, a whole new era in, in history. An era filled with God's presence where there's just no limitation on God's presence. God is everywhere and always the spirit ready to interact with all of us and lead us forward. So it's this season of this new awareness of God that will have the power to actually change the world and change our experience of brokenness and, and disorientation. Not in some escapist fantasy. This isn't like everything's going to be better when you die and go to heaven. No, it's, it's not a hope of escape. It's a hope of God invading earth and then unleashing this new way of being on the world. And we are the, the first fruits of this. This is what it means to be the people of God. Our hope is, is that God will establish a new covenant, a, a new way of relating between humanity and God. And God will do this through sending a new ruler who turned out to be this baby who grew to be a very, very different kind of king. His, his throne was a cross, his crown, a crown of thorns, a completely revolutionary kind of picture of power. And this ruler, Jeremiah says, will, will rule in our hearts, not just on paper, transforming us from the inside out as persons and as, as a community. And we'll begin to embody now, right now, in the midst of the, the brokenness, We'll, we'll begin to embody now that future, the good future. It'll happen inside this, this space of hope that we've carved out. That's Advent. Advent's not for the cynics who think the world's too messed up for something good to happen. It's not for the sentimentalists who just want to have a warm fuzzy and then just disengage and numb out. Advent is about this hard work. It's active, this hard work of preparing a space for God to show up by pushing cynicism out to the side and saying, I'm going to care. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let myself get hurt. And pushing sentimentality out to the side, just say, it's like precious moments, man. It's not, it's not enough. This is lame, right? And to, and to say, I'm going to stay in, here in the middle, and I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to fight for hope. I'm going to fight for a better future for me and for the people I love, right? That's the Advent move. It starts with telling the truth. We are in a time of deep disorientation. And if we speak this word, everybody will hate us. Because <laughs> the world is a hot mess. And if we tell the truth about this, it ruins the game of the sentimentalists, right? And if we say... You know, every, if we keep going this way, it's going to, you know, get a lot worse. The cynics will love us for a while. 
But then we, then we make the move to hope. And we say, nevertheless, our whole story is that God has come to us. That God always comes to us in the form of um, weakness and vulnerability. And people who are willing to lay down their lives for one another. And this, this has the power to change the world. That's when the cynics check out. They say nothing can change the world. And we say no. The story we tell in Advent is that in the midst of just the darkest and, and just most broken point in Israel and Judah's history, God shows up in the world and begins to initiate this new future that shouldn't have survived. But here we are today, still part of it. God shows up in the craziest, most unimaginable way, being born in human skin, walking among us, teaching us how to love and how to be human as human was meant to be. And his spirit, released um, after his death, is alive in us, in the church. And his presence with us has the power to transform history. It already has. And it still can again. So that's our task, you guys, during Advent. You can actually, you can let that kind of drop down behind you. I don't want you to have to hold it the whole time. Our task is, is to open up a space between the cynicism and sentimentality of culture to hold a space for hope that is rooted in this sense of anticipation, the sense of waiting. Advent means waiting um, for God's presence to come to us and, and to inspire in us a vision of the world that can be and then begin to live like that future now, in the, even in the midst of the disorientation. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks um, for the prophets. And we just confess how difficult it is to um, face the truth about our world. And um, how we like to default to conventional wisdom. So we ask you um, during this Advent season to give us courage. Pray that we would um, embrace the idea of decrescendoing so that we can just kind of pack all the logistical craziness of the Christmas season into the early part of our month so that as we move through these next four weeks, we can slow ourselves we can open up space for you just to say, come to us, Lord Jesus. Give us a vision of the world as it's meant to be. And I pray for all of us here in Redemption Church. I pray honestly that we would, we would have an experience here in the next four weeks of preparation, of anticipation, making space, crowding out the ways of the culture of cynicism and sentimentality, making space for hope. Not blind hope, but hope that tells the truth. And we turn to you right now as a people and we just say, we need your presence. We need to know that you're here. And so we ask you to come to us in this season. Send your spirit. 
to each of us as persons and to redemption as a church. And pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to stand, please, and we're going to receive communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after he gave thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said um, to his followers sitting there, this cup is the new covenant. Picks up that same word we just read from Jeremiah. The new covenant, he said, in my blood, my life. And, and then he said, whenever you get together, um, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life into your life, and remember who you are and who you're meant to be to the world. And so this is why we receive communion. It's part of this old, old story, which is all the way back to Jeremiah, this new covenant that's established through Christ. And so we invite everyone to who calls on the name of Christ for their salvation to come join us um, at the table. If you would also join me in praying a blessing on it. Lord, we pray to you this morning and ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?